Make a start. Well, good morning. I love that. You're learning to say good morning back to me. <laughs> it's really good. Welcome to our third session in the Early Kings series. Where should you be in your Bibles? Well, <laughs> 1 Samuel, and we are at chapter 8. Chapter 8 of the first book of Samuel. Now, I will keep putting this up to remind you. Just one thing. Yes? In all of the details that we go through, God, I am convinced, will teach you at least one thing. And that's the thing that you need to hang on to. Yes? Fasten your seatbelts. The greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence. It is to act with yesterday's logic. I'll read that again. The greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence. It is to act with yesterday's logic. Peter Drucker is uh, an Austro-American uh, businessman. In our country, I think it would be fair to say that it's not just windy today, which it is, but we are in times of turbulence. Yes? No one has a clue, really, what's going on. And I, for one, am getting a little fed up of turning on the BBC News and thinking, oh, great, here we go again. Here we go again. In 1 Samuel 8... We are coming to a point of turbulence for the nation of Israel. Last week we concluded with Samuel leading the people in repentance and raising up the stone of Ebenezer. Everything's going to be great, yes? However, chapter 8, uh, turbulent times are coming. Let's read the first few verses. 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel grew, what? Uh-oh, here we go. Never a good opening sentence. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah or Abijah, whichever you wish to pronounce. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gains and accepted bribes and perverted justice. What did they do? Accepted bribes and perverted justice. And what are they? Judges. Not a good combination, yes? Accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now, does this remind you of anyone? Eli, good, well done. His sons were called? Oh, Hophni and Phinehas, okay. You would have thought that Samuel, Samuel would have learnt the lesson from Eli. That, you know, bring up your sons right. 
Now, don't worry if you can't see too much of this. This is all in your notes. But I wanted you to see the comparisons. Eli is all of this. Samuel is all of this. They both lived a life dedicated to God, yes? Yes. Eli did not restrain his sons. Samuel appears not to have been aware initially of his son's misdeeds. Hophni and Phinehas, they were guilty of immorality and greed within even the tabernacle. Do you remember? They were demanding bits of the sacrifice for themselves and they were having sexual relationships with women in the temple. Joel and Abiju, Samuel's sons, accepted bribes and perverted justice. Still sin, whatever they're doing. Eli was warned twice of their sin and did nothing. We're about to find out what the elders tell Samuel about his sons. It's never easy as a parent when someone tells you what your kids are doing. Yes? Yeah? Anyone ever be there or nobody's going to admit it? Right. Eli did repent of misjudging Hannah, but he did nothing to repent of how he did not reprove his sons. He just let them get on with it. Samuel, however, does walk closely with God. Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day as did Eli in direct judgment from God. Remember last week? Prophesied, happened. Joel and Abijah are ignored. We actually find out very little about them. Let's go back to our chapter, verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together... And came to Samuel at Ramah. This is a deputation, guys. They said to him, oh, here we go again. You are old. Oh, I hate that. (laughs) You're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, pause there. Just read that bit as one. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, That's it. Joel and Abijah, totally dismissed from the picture. We do not hear about them ever again. It's almost as if they just had the sack. We don't know it, but they are never mentioned again. Now, appoint a king to lead us. Oh, crumbs, look at this phrase. Such as all the other nations have. How many of you know that parenting comes in several forms? Good, bad, indifferent, birth, adoptive, all sorts of parenting goes on. And I think Samuel was about to find out that it's one thing to lead a nation. It's quite another to lead your family. You can appear to be able to lead at a high level on a national scale. But in your own home, it's a different matter. At this point, may I make a plea which is deeply personal. Pray for your pastors and pray for their families. They are on frontline targets. In fact, anybody involved in what is loosely called ministry, which is basically serving God, is a target. I'm a pastor's kid, PK by name, 
Pico by nature. And let me tell you, it's very hard for children born into a pastor's family. What can sometimes be harder, which actually was my experience, was if your parents come into ministry later on in life. My dad became a minister when I was 19. And a whole new ball game comes into play. I was chatting to somebody earlier on about trolling. Yeah, yeah I, it was a new thing. Basically, it's a name for cyberbullying. And where people use the internet to attack individuals because of the connections of their family. Katie Price at the moment is fighting to try and get that made a crime. Let me tell you, I have known pastors' children who are torn to shreds because of how they look. Why? And the only reason is because of who their families are. Yeah? We may think, oh, Samuel should have known better. Eli should have known better. It's incredibly difficult if you're actually in that position. So a plea, please, to pray for them. So the elders are saying, appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. Oh, this is where it gets really interesting here. If I have pronounced it incorrectly, please forgive me. But the word for displeased in the Hebrew is roah. R-A-W-A-H. But it literally means to spoil by breaking apart. That was Samuel's rejection. All this time that they're supposed to have been in a theocracy, which was God leading them, they're now saying, we want a king. We want to move to a monarchy. And it greatly displeased to the point that he felt everything's breaking apart here. What does God say? When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed, usually a good response. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. What's that saying? Samuel was the kind of guy who took things personally. You're never like that, are you? No, no. Somebody raises a problem and we think it's our fault because they've told us. God immediately reassures them that is not the case. They've rejected me. It's not you they've rejected. And God goes on to say, you know, they've done this ever since we came out of uh, Egypt. So, Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, I'm in verse 11, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. What's he doing? He's saying, you really, really, really want a king? Do you have any idea what it's like to have a king? You think it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to tell you what having a king looks like. Okay. The problems with having a king. Most of these we will cover over the course of the series. The last one, 
goes beyond our scope. But we've got quite a full. Samuel warned that they, a king would, oops, sorry, would draft young men into the army. Right? There we got its fulfillment in 1 Kings 14.52. Whenever Saul saw a young man who was brave and strong, he drafted him into his army. They're going to take the best, yes? He's not going to take, you know, those who are weak and the cast-offs. He's going to take the best. Having the young men run before his chariots when we get to Absalom. That's exactly what he did. He hired 50 footmen to run ahead of him. Just in case you didn't know he thought he was self-important. Samuel warned that a king would make slave laborers. Exactly what Solomon did. Take the best of your fields and vineyards. Naboth's vineyard, remember the story? With Jezebel, yeah. Using your property for his personal gain. Again, when we come to Solomon, gives away 20 cities. What? And then last, demanding a tenth of your harvest and flocks. And that was Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was going to do that. But I want you to, when we read this section... I want you to listen for one tiny four-letter word. See if you can spot it. Verse 11 onwards. Samuel said, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for the chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your maidservants and men servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you've chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. What's the four-letter word? Take. take. A king's going to take anything you've got. Now, you'd think when it's spelled out, by Samuel, that they would say, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. What do they say? They refused to listen. No, they said, we want a king over us. Anyone ever seen a toddler on a high chair? We're going to have one. You can't tell us otherwise. They're acting like children. Then we shall be like all the other nations. Can you imagine? No, we can't. But let's try and imagine how God felt hearing these next words. We're the king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who's been fighting their battles before this? But now a king is going to do this. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them. And give them a king. It's very difficult to try and put human emotions onto God. 
Okay, there's your government health warning. Very difficult. Sometimes I look at that and think, oh, God is being, quote, fatalistic. Oh, okay, let them have a king. God is never fatalistic. So that can't be right. How else could you read that? Listen to them and give them a king. God obviously is one of his attributes is all-knowing. So he knew what would happen. But he's saying, that's what they want. That's what they're going to have. Isn't there a verse somewhere where it says, he gave them what they, what they asked, but sent leanness into their Ah, interesting. Linda has just mentioned a verse which says, he gave them what they wanted, but leanness of soul or leanness of spirit? Something like that. I can't remember. We'll have a look for it, maybe in the break. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Just for the point of the recording, Graham has mentioned that before this, Israel had no military concept or structure. And now they wanted one. There is a five-letter word that springs to mind. P-O-W-E-R. They want power. They want to be strong. Now, I know I keep saying this. We are going to be actually looking at that later in the series because the lack... No, 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 no. I love it when people go ahead. Forerunner spirits, that's fine. That the lack of military stuff was potentially a problem, but they were going to misuse it. Okay, we need to crack on. What do you think the verses that we've just read about the demanding, we want a king, tell us about Israel's relationship with God at this point. Sorry? They don't trust him. They really, really do not trust God. Has God ever given them cause to think that? Exact opposite. I wonder if you've ever made wrong choices because you wanted to be like everyone else. Oh, you need to write that down and think about it and not answer it out loud. It's a very human response, isn't it? If ever you've ever taught children or maybe even more, that you've had a child who goes to a class, I want a Mario, because everyone in my class has got a Mario. I have to wear pink glitter stilettos to school, because everyone wears pink glitter stilettos to school. It is a powerful peer pressure point. But they're talking about it on a national scale. Okay, so who wants to be king? I'm grateful to Google Images for that particular image, potentially, of Saul. It's from a, a film about him. But I think, you know, it could have been anyone. But he looks the part, doesn't he? Let's move on into chapter 9. Who is going to be this amazing person? There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. Okay, so he's not quite Saul yet. 
son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of... Oh my goodness, it goes on and on. Right, he had a son named Saul. An impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites. And what's distinctive about him? He's a head taller than any of the others. That would have made him stand out in more ways than one, wouldn't it? If you've got all of the nation in a whole mass army in front of you, and then you just spot this one guy <laughs> whose head and shoulders bigger than anyone else, he's going to stand up. Has anyone got um, a Bible which is not New International Version, which has a different word for impressive? Yeah, Richard. Handsome. Handsome is the most frequently used alternative for impressive. He was handsome. Yeah? I wonder, what would be the first thing people would say to, about you to introduce you to somebody else? <laughs> uh -huh. Last week, I, I think I slightly embarrassed Nadia by calling her faithful. Do you mind having that as the first thing to introduce you, darling? No, bless you. What would be the first thing people would say about you? Do I look good in this? The emphasis here is on what? Externals. How does he look? Does he look like a king? Forget whether he's ever, ever done anything kingly in his life. Does he look like it? The nation wanted a leader who would look the part. Now, chapter 9 goes on, and it's, I'm aware time is rapidly going on. Saul has been sent, together with his servant, to go and find some lost donkeys. Now, it sounds a ridiculous errand, doesn't it, to us? But actually, donkeys at that time were considered uh, necessary transportation. So their loss would have been quite devastating. So Saul is entrusted to locate the animals by his dad. And initially, they had real problems finding them. So they approached the town called Ramah, or we think it's probably Ramah, it's where Samuel lived, and decided to ask him to see if he could help locate the animals. Now, it's quite difficult because it appears that Saul didn't recognize this man of God. So that may say something about Saul's spiritual state of mind at the moment, because Samuel was a national leader. So they, they go up to the town. Verse 14. Um, as they were entering the town, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place, on a way to sacrifice. Listen to this. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. Quote, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him. What's the word? Leader. Now, take note of that. It's not king. Anoint him leader. Over my people Israel, he will deliver the people from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Right, so Samuel's had this conversation with God 24 hours ahead. God says, Watch out for him. I'm bringing him to you. Samuel goes out the next day, and God said, That's the one. Now, bear this in mind. 
Samuel is listening to God about who the leader's going to be. And God said, that's the one. Hold that thought. You're going to need it later on in the series. Okay? Now, we carry on. Saul approaches Samuel and said, would you please tell me where the seer's house? There's an explanation there about sometimes a prophet was called a seer. I am the seer, Samuel said. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is in your heart. It's a little bit worrying to me. I'm going to tell you what you think. I'm going to tell you how you feel. Okay, as for the donkeys you lost three days ago. Hang on, who's told Samuel about the donkeys? Do not worry about them. They've been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your father's family? What? Suddenly the spotlight comes on Saul. Does Saul want to be king? He says, I, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? He panics. He's got an inkling that a spotlight is coming towards him. Any one of you have got the Life Application Study Bible, these are notes at the bottom, and they are in your notes. I think it's brilliant. This outburst reveals a problem that Saul would face repeatedly, feeling inferior. Let me put it up on screen for you. Like a leaf tossed about by the wind, Saul vacillated between his feelings and his convictions. Whoa, may need to think about that one. Everything he said and did was selfish because he worried about himself. For example, Saul said his clan was the least in the smallest tribe of Israel. But 9.1 says, talk about Kish, his father was a man of standing. So he can't have been that insignificant. Remember, the tribe of Benjamin was the smallest. They were nearly wiped out as punishment at the end of Judges. Saul did not want to face the responsibility God had given him. Although he'd been called by God and had a mission in life, he struggled constantly with jealousy, insecurity, arrogance, impulsiveness, and deceit. He did not decide to be wholeheartedly committed to God. And because Saul would not let God's love give him rest in his heart, he never became God's man. It's all in your notes, but I think that is really worth thinking about. The rest of chapter 9, Samuel, bearing in mind he's had a heads up from God about this meeting, has made preparations for a meal to be served. Verse 22, Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited. Now this should have given him a few clues that something's going on. You don't give someone the place of honour unless you think they're significant. There were about 30 of them. Okay, so Saul has never been in this room before. He doesn't know what's going on. He's wondering about these funny comments of Samuel. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. Oh, what do you think that's saying? That it was poisoned? No, that it was 
for somebody special. Absolutely. So the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said I have invited guests. So Saul dines with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak and Samuel called to Saul on the roof. Now, that sounds a bit odd, but bearing in mind that the roofs are flat, and quite often in biblical times, they would actually sleep on the roof because it was cooler. Yes? He wasn't shoving them on the roof because he had nowhere for him to stay. All right? He said to Saul, get ready and I will send you on your way. And when Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. And as they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, tell your servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here a while so that I may give you a message from God. <coughs> what? What's the message? Verse 10, or chapter 10. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head. And kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you? What's that word? Leader over his inheritance. When you leave me today, you will. We'll come back into that in a moment. What has Samuel just done? He's anointed him. Wow. It is possible, you know. To be anointed by God before a public acknowledgement of the role. This is exactly what happened to Saul. He was anointed in private, first of all, by Samuel. Now, there may be times in your experience or people you know that God has touched their life for a purpose. And it takes an awfully long time for that to actually come to fruition. God does things on time. He's never too late, and he never forgets his promises, even though there are times between them. But God chose this first moment with Saul to do something very privately and anoint him leader by the recognized religious leader of the nation. <coughs> God may have anointed you for a role before you ever have an opportunity to demonstrate that anointing. It's coffee time. I'll leave that up there for you to ponder, but your coffees and teas are right there waiting for you. Let's have a break. getting you so well trained to sit down it's great you're frightening oh can you can you remind me how to do that <laughs> um, I do love it when you talk to me um, and Graham mentioned that the word kish k-i-s-h for Saul's father do you know what the word means I didn't know this Bent, B-E-N-T. Now, <laughs> we are getting a lot of father and son stuff going on in this series, aren't we? Going on. 
Okay, so before coffee, Saul has just been anointed by Samuel. And then Samuel does something quite extraordinary. Bearing in mind that the two of them are conversing in private. Yep. This is what he says. Verse 2 of chapter 10 in 1 Samuel. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Wow. The donkeys are found. You're meeting three men carrying goats, loaves, and wine. And then you meet the prophets at the Philistine garrison and start to prophesy himself. We did talk a little last week about the fact that the gift of prophecy is one of the hardest to nail down. Yes? And about people who say the first bit, which is the bit God gave them to, and embellish. Yes? Here, we have something which is extraordinarily detailed. It's very personal to Saul. You know, even the three men, the three goats, this much bread, and this is what they will do, and this is that. And, and you think, wow. Now, every single one of those came to pass. You may remember me saying to you last week, that the test of a prophet is that the prophecies come to pass. But that a great many of the prophecies that are later on in Scripture did not come to pass until after the person had died. In fact, there are still many Scriptures which are outstanding. doesn't mean that the prophet was wrong. It's just that it was a long-term prophecy. But with Samuel, we heard last week that his prophetic record was Flawless. They all came to pass. Now, verse 8 is really critical. Go down ahead of me, says Samuel, to Gilgal. I will surely come to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must what? Wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. You need to park that somewhere really safe. Wait for seven days. Now, the third of those prophecies 
that Saul would be changed into a different person and would prophesy, tell us something extraordinary. Did the Holy Spirit exist in the Old Testament? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now, let's do a quick, and I mean really quick, whistle-stop tour. I think, and I stand to be corrected, one of the first people that we are told received a specific endowment of the Holy Spirit for service. Sorry? You might not know this person's name because we don't know much about him, but he is significant. Bezalel. Who on earth is Bezalel? Bezalel was a goldsmith craftsman. And we're told in Exodus 31 that the Spirit of God came upon him in order to make all of the beautiful things in the tabernacle. He was already skilled, but the Spirit came on in specific power. Let's look at a few others. Joshua, Othniel, Gideon. Who were these? The clue should be in the reference. Yes. Judges. We are told that the Spirit of God came upon them in great power. And, of course, our dear friend, Samson. Bezalel was not specifically a leader of the nation, but he would have probably been a leader of what we would now recognize as a craft guild. Yeah? So all of these were leaders, but Saul is the first king. He is the first king, full stop, but he is the first king on whom the Holy Spirit comes. Listen to what we read in verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel... God changed Saul's heart. There's the first prophetic coming to pass. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. Oh my goodness, that is a very short time frame, isn't it? The same day God fulfills them. Verse 10. When they arrived at Gabeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who'd formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Uh Okay. That has sparked an awful lot of commentary stuff. Is Saul also among the prophets? The clue comes in the bit of those who had formerly known him were making the comment, yes? Saul probably wasn't the kind of person you would associate as a prophet. Yes? And what they're saying, a sort of colloquial equivalent would be, a soul got religion. Really? Soul? And it was actually quite confusing for them. They didn't know what to make of it. Saul's uncle meets him and says, you know, hi, hi. and Saul's uncle quite naturally says, where have you been? Um, looking for the donkeys. <laughs> but when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel, as if he's known Samuel so well before this. Samuel's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said. You've met Samuel? Tell me what he said. Verse 16, Saul replied, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. 
full stop. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. I bet he didn't. Partly because he was so scared. Partly because it was done in private. Yes? However, he had counted without Samuel. Verse 17. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up. And he goes on a bit. I'm sorry, some preachers can go on a bit. Um, about the fact that they come out of Egypt. Verse 19, but you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. Remember the bit we read about we want a king to fight our battles. Samuel says, hang on, God did all of that. And you said, no, set a king over us. So present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Oh, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Samuel says, you asked for a king? Group yourselves into your clans. Oh, how is he going to choose? Is there a choice? Do we get a choice? What's going on? Verse 20, when Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Do you know the traditional way that this was done then? How do you choose? Urim and Thummim? You ever heard that? The yes or the no questions. We'll go into that maybe a little bit later. They chose and they said, is it you? Yes. No. Is it you? Yes. No. Until they whittled them down and Benjamin is chosen. So he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was chosen. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. Saul is hiding. Now, Saul already knows that something's going to be happening. So they inquired further of the Lord. Can you imagine? All these clans, and suddenly, oh, it's Saul. Where is he? We don't know. Oh, God, where is he? And I have a feeling God may have had a little bit of a giggle at this one. And the Lord said, yeah, he's hidden himself amongst the baggage. Amongst the luggage. Come on. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than everybody. So Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him amongst all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. This is at a place called Mizpah. And Samuel warns the people, by choosing an earthly king, you've actually rejected God as king. Just make sure you understand that. Samuel's going to keep plugging away at this. God has given you what you've asked for, but it means that you have rejected God as your leader. So we've had a private anointing We've now got a very public affirmation. This is the one. There is no way now that Saul can back out. Yeah? He's had it happen twice. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. 
Give that man a Freddo. Graham has rightly pointed out that so far Samuel has never used the word king. The people use the word king. He's only ever called him leader. Right? I do remember. Bless his heart. My dad died 25 years ago this year, which is an extraordinary comment to make. Lovely man. Some of you knew him. And uh, the funeral took two hours because so many people wanted to say their two penneth. <laughs> but we had one lovely young man called Peter, who was one of our assistant pastors, who was one of these preachers who says, well, I don't know what I know, but I know. Boom, you know. He would never call himself a scholar, but he was a great, and still is a great man of faith. And Peter stood up and said something which has stayed with me to this day. He said, Eric, as a leader... He led, and he sat down. <laughs> Sometimes you think, nobody needs to say anything else. He led, and he did. Led by example, all sorts of things. And Samuel is ramming home. You have to lead. It's not about the status, it's not about the prestige, and it certainly is not about the power. It's about the leading. Are you prepared to do that? Well spotted, Gray. Right at the end of verse 10. Verse 25. Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship. Do you remember the warnings that we had? Now he's doing it again. No one's going to accuse Samuel of not doing his job. And then he wrote them on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. It's almost as if he's saying, God, you know I've said this. There's the evidence. You keep it for safekeeping. We don't know where it was deposited. I got a few ideas, but you know. Then Samuel dismissed the people each to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by... Valiant men whose hearts God had touched. Oh, don't, don't gloss over that phrase. If God calls you into ministry, you're not called into ministry alone. Can I say that again? If God calls you into ministry, he does not call you alone. He will have brought other people around you. I'm, I'm going to embarrass somebody. And you're all wondering who it is. This is my lovely friend, Carol. Carol is an amazing chef and cook. And she runs a cookery school. I've been very blessed to learn how to make Christmas cakes from this dear lady. But she would be the first to tell you that God brought alongside her very special people. She works with an amazing team. And she leads and motivates them. Now, I hope that's given you enough business, yes? <laughs> It's <laughs> all right. A coffee will do nicely, Carol. That's fine. Whatever God puts in your heart to do, if it's of Him, He will bring you someone to do it with. And yet, the ministry often feels like the most isolated of positions. So, 
Let's take our prayer a little further. If you're praying for your pastors, pray for their supporters. I have been so humbled, particularly this last week, with people checking in with me saying, I'm praying for you. We don't do this alone. But God had touched the hearts of people to be with Saul. But, oh, here we go. I hate that little word, don't you? But some troublemakers said, how can this fellow despise, uh, save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Not a bad thing to do. We tend to think about the ones who don't like us more than the ones who do, don't we? Ah, oh, so-and-so didn't come. You had great presents from... Did you notice? They didn't bring you anything. <sighs> and they're stirring. Sorry, Bob, yeah? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Bob just said, in any ministry, there's always going to be troublemakers. And they're not going to be outside the church most of the time. You can almost expect and handle if it comes from the outside. It's when people who sit in the same row as you have a bit of a dig. So, okay, we've had a private anointing and now a public affirmation, yes? What happens next? Chapter 11. We're doing well. Are you still with me? Good, well done. Nahash, it's a lovely name, the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Right. You have this in your notes. So, an awful lot of what we've had going on has been at Gibeah, not far from Jerusalem. But now we've got problems just over the Jordan River in Jabesh Gilead. Okay? And here, something quite extraordinary happens. This guy called Nahash went up and besieged the city. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. Uh, one word, surrender, yeah? But Nahash the Ammonite wanted more, and he replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Pleasant chap, yes? The significance of that removal of the eye. Um, did he? Yeah. He made it specific right eye. And you might think, yes, so what? We live in a generation where it's okay to be left or right-handed. But in the Old Testament, it was actually very rare to be left-handed. So the assumption was that the dominant part of you was on the right side. Don't forget the little words in Scripture. But removal of the right eye had two major impacts. One, it was, sounds horrible to say this, it was a standard reaction to show that you were a prisoner of war or had been oppressed by another army. Yeah? The other thing is, particularly, bearing in mind at this point that we haven't got massive military power, their main form of attack and defense was archery. And if you've ever watched an archer, they 
put the arrow in, pull the bow, and they close one eye. Well, imagine if you are right-handed, right-sighted, but you don't have your right eye anymore. Major problem, yeah? So it would not only be disfiguring and an outward sign of being oppressed and beaten, but you remove the possibility of attack. So the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. What? Give us a week. Um, <laughs> let me tell you. Normally when a military commander says, do it now, they don't expect them to say, well, just give us a week and then we'll surrender. <laughs> I mean, it's not sense, is it? But Jabesh assumed, ah, oh, well, that'll do. He let them have their seven days. Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, did they say, oh, we're not having this? Come on, let's go and sort it out. What did they do? They wept. Excuse me. They cried. Oh, woe is us. We're in trouble. Can't do anything. Saul, meanwhile, was returning from his day job. He was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, what's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? And they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. Saul heard their words, and the Spirit of God came upon him in power. That's where the power's coming from, not from military strength, but from the Spirit of God. And he burned with anger, otherwise known as a righteous anger. Yes? How dare anyone try and attack God's people? He took a pair of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent the pieces by messenger throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Oh, great. That's an interesting visual aid, isn't it? Have a piece of oxen, why don't you? Any of you were here last year? Remember a similar scenario? where a young concubine had to be sacrificed because she was raped. And this man cut up her body and sent her body parts throughout Israel and said, this is the reality of what's going on. bit reminiscent of that same reaction. Let's do it in a shock formation, yes? The terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. So he's now got 330,000 troops. They're all inexperienced because they've never had an army like this before. Certainly not under someone who they think of as their king. Now it's possible that this Nahash assumed that, you know, those Israelites are very disorganized. What can they do in a week? You know, pretty ridiculous to imagine that they could get themselves organized and that he would have a walkover without the need for battle or a lengthy siege. 
what happens? Verse 9. The people of Jabesh Gilead told the messengers, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by this time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be... Sorry, I've gone back too far. The men of Israel, these 330,000, told the messengers, go back to Jabesh Gilead and tell them, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you'll be delivered. That's not actually what they said. When the messengers went and reported this to the man of Jabesh, they related it first, but they said to the Ammonites, this is the people with, Am- with Nahash, tomorrow we will surrender to you. Interesting tactic. And you can do to us whatever seems good to you. The next day, so these Ammonites are waiting for this walkover, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, yeah, near dawn, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Ooh, interesting tactics. Let's do it at dawn. So that, you know, element of surprise. It's renowned in military terms as the point where most are weakest. It's very, very reminiscent of Gideon. Gideon did a very similar thing by splitting his into three. So we now have a victory at Bezek. Yes? So we have three affirmations of kingship. Saul has been anointed privately at Ramah by Samuel. The affirmation of the people at Mizpah. And now he is confirmed at Gilgal following this battle. That would be in verse 15, where Samuel told them to come and they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord at Gilgal. Samuel said to the people, come let us go to Gilgal and there reaffirm the kingship okay so now there's a horrible phrase but it kind of fits he's been bloodied in battle in other words he has proved himself worthy to be a king in battle he's motivated the people where they hadn't been motivated before and to be perfectly honest with such an inexperienced group of people even though there were a lot of them they did well. They did well. We'll go quickly, dip into chapter 12. Samuel uses this as his farewell speech. After all, we have been told at least twice that Samuel is now old. Okay. He stands before the people. It's a very brave thing to do. He says to all Israel, I've listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. Interesting how he's combining the two. As for me, I am, here we go, old and grey, and my sons are here with you. They're still there, but they have absolutely no role in what's going on. Yeah. How old is Samuel? I think we had something like 98, wasn't it? Somewhere around there. I will double check that, but he is ancient. Ancient. 
I have been your leader from my youth into this day. Now listen to this. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of this, I will make it right. And they said, you have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and also his anointed. Who would that be? Saul. Saul. Is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Why was that important? Oh, come on, you can talk to me. Why is he emphasizing this? Because he's setting a standard. He is setting a standard. Absolutely right, Judith. He's setting a standard, but he's also been going back to the lie and the true side. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's making the direct comparison with Eli, Hophni, Phineas, and his own two sons, Joel and Abijah. I have not done anything wrong. And you are here. Call me out if you want to. But I've done absolutely nothing wrong. He gives a review and a warning. Let's look at this very quickly. Chapter 12, verse 12. When you saw, he's saying to the Israelites, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, we want a king to rule over us. That's the first indication we get that Nahash had actually been nibbling at the edges before this whole question of kingship came up. It seems as if they looked at him and thought, woohoo, we need a king. Yes? Even though the Lord was your God and king, now, here is the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. There is this interesting dichotomy here. Who has chosen Saul? The people or God? Yeah. Seems to be a bit of a mix. The Lord has set a king, but here is a king you have chosen. Bit of both there, I think. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be upon you as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. What great thing? What? What we got? Well, what we got? Yeah, we, we proved that what he was saying was faithful. Sorry, because um, you're not taking back. That was a great thing. Thunder and rain. I didn't have a thunder sound effect, but if you have lightning, you have thunder. Why is that significant? Well, the time was May and June, and the scripture tells us that that was the wheat harvest for Israel. Rain rarely fell during that part. So a great thunderstorm would be regarded as miraculous because Samuel asked for it and virtually immediately got it. I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realize what an evil thing you've done in the eyes of the Lord when you ask for a king. Samuel calls and the same day the Lord sends thunder and rain. 
Why? I have a theory. My theory is traditionally thunder has been regarded as a sign that God is angry. Yeah? So is lightning. You know, so many people said, oh, if I've done wrong, I hope he just strikes me down with lightning or something. There's a traditional thing in the human psyche that says that thunder is a sign of God being angry. And Samuel wanted them to know that God was actually angry that they had rejected him as king. The miracle is that it happened the same day at a season when it would have been completely dry. Also, God blessed their harvest normally, but bringing thunder and rain at that point could have been potentially very damaging to the crops. So it's a warning that actually you think that you're in control, but guess what? No. It demonstrated God's power and his displeasure. Samuel, the people ask Samuel, pray for us. Yeah, I'll bet they did. And Samuel takes the opportunity to say, come on, turn away from idols, fear God. Samuel is faithful. It is never, ever easy to be a prophet. It wasn't then, it's not now. Because they often have to preach messages of repentance, judgment, impending destruction, sin, and how God was displeased over the behavior of his people. It does not win friends and influence people. Gosh, do you think there are patterns in Scripture? <laughs> Moses said exactly, that you are absolutely spot on. There are. I'm really glad you spotted it. Moses said a very similar thing just before the entrance into the Promised Land. Samuel, in that great tradition of godly leadership, reminds them again. He doesn't say, can you set up a monument to me because I've been wonderful. His final words are, serve the Lord, serve the Lord. Prophets were not very popular, unless, of course, they were false prophets who spoke lies about God's reaction. But God's bottom line, popularity is not the bottom line for God's true prophets. The bottom line is obedience to God and faithfully proclaiming his word. Oh, the symbol of rainbow goes back to Noah that God would never flood the earth again. Yeah, that was a different kind of symbol, but yeah. That's a whole other story. Let's wind this up. Final points to ponder. Do you, like Samuel, faithfully pass on God's word to others, even if it's uncomfortable? Ooh. Sometimes preachers are accused of tickling the ears of their hearers, making them feel, oh, that was nice, without a challenge. How can we effectively warn people of spiritual danger? <coughs> a good friend tells you like it is. Yeah. But it's not easy, is it? I know John has friends who say, how's your soul? <laughs> yeah. What's the difference between a theocracy and a monarchy? You should know that now. Theocracy is where 
God has this direct line. The monarchy is where they're starting to substitute additional layers, partly to avoid going to God. And I wonder, how does the Holy Spirit affect our lives and calling? And if any of you say not at all, you need to come and see me afterwards. The Holy Spirit is a gracious, powerful gentleman. He does not evade, but he might ever so slightly intrude. Because he wants to empower us for what God has called us to do. Jesus Christ, our brother, alongside us, Holy Spirit, empowering us, God the Father, ordaining, planning, and that's just a very simple thing of the Trinity. That's just one aspect. But the Holy Spirit wants you to succeed. He wanted Saul to succeed. It wasn't a case of God saying, oh, you want a king? Have a king. I'm going off. See you back in two centuries. God is not like that. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. But I will empower you with the Spirit to do it. But you have to walk after me. And that was a big thing. One things. Have we got a couple of one things? Mary. Yep. Oh, did you get that? Have I allowed God to give rest to my heart so that I might become his woman? Interesting one thing. That's going to keep you busy the next week, isn't it? Yeah. Any more one things? Yes, Graham. Oh, have we modeled the church on monarchy rather than theocracy? <laughs> I'll have that, I'd say, in 2,000 words or less. I think part of that I would agree with, part of that I possibly wouldn't, for the sake of those who didn't hear, that humans on the whole prefer to have a physical leader rather than someone they cannot see. I have uh, somebody contesting that potentially, Sue. Oh, no, she just wanted one thing. Okay, can I just come back to that? Um, Yes, I think some church government, in theory, work with a plurality of leaders, but I think also the point is made that quite often they do work as in isolation. That can be dangerous if they're not accountable. So I think we need an accountability system, which certainly in this church, and I know many I've worked with, do have. Um, but at this point, remember, they have what we will go on to discuss more, a concept that they wouldn't have called it this, but we know it as this, the divine right of kings. That a king can do as he wishes. Um, and at that point, Samuel was the only point of accountability. So when Samuel goes, <coughs> what then? I'm sorry, Sue, let me come back to you. Um, no, I just, the 
Yeah. Okay, let me just for the sake of the podcast just pick up those two. Um, Sue brought us this one thing about Samuel depositing the scroll before the Lord. And, and where would she deposit something before the Lord? And also the fact of the Holy Spirit intruding. Yeah. Oh God. Look after my diary. Look after my phone contacts and intrude as you will. (coughs) I am praying that very genuinely because at the moment I've got a crazy diary. Will I allow God to interrupt me? In my thinking, in my assumptions. God is not a distraction, folks. Mm. And Joan of Arc, a fascinating character in history. Sometimes we can be attacked and accused for the wrong stuff. Welcome to the world of being a Christian. I say that with respect. They will always try and find something to attack you on. Most of the time, it's completely unconnected with you. But in the eyes of world and social media, that rarely matters. It has ever been thus. It just really matters fast now. Does it matter? Only in the sense that you stay faithful. Samuel stayed faithful till his last breath. Samuel would not take power. Kept pointing up. One more thing. Yep. Yep. Yes. Oh, absolutely. They beg for a king, and eventually God gave them one. That could be speaking to me on two levels. One, if we nag God enough, will he relent? God does talk about persevering prayer. Um, They will come to find that actually what they got wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And I think very often a good parent will sometimes do something that they know is not a good idea to show you why it's not a good idea. I read someone of uh, a parent who found his child 
a very quite young child trying to smoke. And rather than just tell him off, he said, okay, you are going to stay in this small cupboard. It was like a cupboard under the stairs, not Harry Potter, but it was like that. And here are 40 cigarettes. When you have smoked them, you may come out. Now, in, in my field, that would potentially be called child abuse. <laughs> but I understand the principle of the lesson. Yeah? He's, he said, great, I can smoke. My dad's happy. Yeah, fine. Well, well it's one thing... I have never smoked, so I'm going on observation. It's one thing to have one cigarette and then wait. And then maybe have another one and then wait. But if you have to chain smoke when you've never chain smoked before and you are very young, you are going to be seriously green. Seriously green. And my understanding is that the child never touched another cigarette and forever told people, don't even start. I'm very grateful to God that I've never had to give up smoking because I never, ever started. I've never smoked and I don't drink. I go to medicals and they are astonished. <laughs> never happened. But did God give them what they asked for? Yes. Were they going to regret it? You're going to have to come back next week and find out. <laughs> We are meeting next week, and then I'm going to give you a little present. It's called two weeks off, <laughs> to coincide with half term. Can you make sure that you return all of your cups to the trolleys and say a nice thank you to all your cafe staff for providing us? My thanks to Richard. We are done.